Praise the Lord, Bridgeway. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Will Eastham, and I have the privilege of serving as a pastoral resident here at Bridgeway. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be able to open God's word with you uh, for a little bit on this Palm Sunday. But before we, we start, I just want to begin by thanking uh, Dr. Anderson and by thanking the elders of this house for entrusting me with this privilege. I'm so grateful for their covering, for their spiritual leadership over our church. And let's continue to pray for our pastor and for the rest of the team that's traveling back from Eastern Europe where they were ministering at the border of Ukraine. Before we open our Bibles to Luke 19, would you take a moment and pray with me? Let's invite God's presence into this time. Yes, we ask even now that you would come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we're, we're here today because we desperately need a word from you. And I pray even now, Lord, that you would be preparing the hearts of all who would hear, that you would deliver to them exactly the message that you've purposed for them to receive. We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as some of you know, uh, my wife, Catherine, and I, we have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Selah, and that was actually her picture that you saw in the beautiful sermon artwork uh, that the brilliant Derek Robinson did. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, what's my favorite part about being a dad? And, and it's hard because there's lots of wonderful things about being a dad. But I think one of my favorite parts has got to be the opportunity to see reality afresh through her eyes. And if you've ever been around a young child, you kind of know what I'm, what I'm talking about. I mean, for Selah, it's a new world every minute. Literally, everything is her first. Everything. Like, I'll never forget on her first birthday, the very first time that she had a bite of ice cream. And I swear, it was like her pupils dilated. She just had this look on her face of like, what is this? Mom, Dad, have you guys known about this the whole time? Does it come in multiple flavors? Yes. Yes, it does. But, you know, it's not, it's not just ice cream. It's the extraordinary things that, for most of us, have become ordinary. She finds joy in hearing the birds sing in the morning. She is in awe of the flowers that grow outside of her window. She's just absolutely fascinated with everything from lightning to lightning bugs. It's almost as if, as if the cup of her soul is just so easily filled to the brim. It's just constantly overflowing with joy. And after these last two years, I think I can speak for many of us in saying that at this point, 
we are not necessarily feeling the wonder that Selah feels, but we're actually feeling pretty weary. Are you feeling weary this morning? Unlike Selah, our cups are feeling mostly empty. And I know for so many of you that life these last couple of years, it's not just taken so much from you, but it's also just taken so much out of you emotionally and spiritually. It seems like wave after wave of trial and tribulation just keep crashing over you and you're, you're, you're trying to see above the water. You're trying to just get a moment to catch your breath. And at times you want to scream like, will I ever be able to thrive and not just survive? Friends, we need Jesus to come and fill our empty cups. We need Jesus to come and fill our empty cups. We need a vision of King Jesus that will renew our fainting faith, that will bring our joy once again to that point of overflow. Amid all the struggles and setbacks of life, we need to see Jesus afresh as he really is, as the king in all of his glory. We need to see Jesus as those first disciples saw Jesus on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. So please, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19 and meet me in verse 28. Let's look together at King Jesus. Let's look at the moments he makes for us. Let's look at the worship he wants from us. And let's look at the wonders he works for us. Are you ready? All right. Starting in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. May the Lord add a blessing to his word. So have you ever been on a, a really long road trip? You know, where it starts out with 
the radio is being turned on and they're singing. There's all this chatter and laughter and conversation. But slowly, like around the like three to four hour mark, definitely by five, six hours, it just starts to get really quiet. People start like plugging in their devices. Everyone's kind of grumpy and sleepy. They're just ready to get there. But then about 15 minutes before you reach your location, something really funny happens, right? It's like everybody gets this second wind. There's sort of this, this buzz in the car. Everybody's just anticipation starts to build up. The chatter and the laughter, the songs, they all sort of start to arise again. So that's sort of how I imagine this moment in Luke 19. So Luke was one of the earliest biographers of Jesus, and he's the writer of, of this account, this biography of Jesus. And he tells us in verse 28 that Jesus and his disciples, they were nearing the end of a really long road trip, a pilgrimage that they'd been taking from the city of Capernaum to the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was, was the spiritual and, and social center of Israel's life. And so every year, faithful Torah-observing Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come to this holy city to celebrate the feast of Passover. The thing is, though, this was a really intense and demanding trip. I mean, it was intense and demanding physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jesus and his disciples, they would have been traveling by foot at times, even sleeping outdoors if they couldn't find lodging in one of the towns where they were staying. They wouldn't have been working, so they would have needed to live off the hospitality of others or whatever money they had that they could sort of pool together before their pilgrimage started. But it was also a spiritually exhausting journey. I mean, think about it. In every single town that they visited, Jesus was preaching. He was casting out demons. He was healing the sick. There was all sorts of spiritual power that was emanating from him. And he was dealing with the constant spiritual pushback of the corrupt religious leaders. But now they're almost there. They're almost at Jerusalem. They're, they're going up that last hill on the Mount of Olives before they reach the crest, and then it's all downhill towards the holy city. I mean, can you, can you smell the sweat of the group as they just strain uphill? Imagine with me if you can see the clouds of dust that are rising from the ground and caking onto their legs as their feet just stomp forward. I mean, can you feel the electricity and the anticipation in the air? Now look with me at the moment of revelation that Jesus makes for his disciples here. Beginning in verse 29. As they approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. So about 500 years before Jesus, the, the prophet Zechariah, he foretold that there was going to be this future king from the line of David 
who would come to Israel. This king called the Messiah, he would, he would be like the new and the better David. Someone both human, but without the human shortcoming. Someone who's also divine, who would deliver his people, bringing them justice and peace, which they've been crying out for for hundreds of years. Zechariah specifically said that this king would appear in Jerusalem, coming down from the Mount of Olives. You can check it out in Zechariah 14.4. He even writes this very peculiar prophetic song of praise for this future coming king on the day that he arrives at Jerusalem. He says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9. So for hundreds of years of brutal oppression, under ever-shifting foreign regimes, after hundreds of years of setbacks, of disappointments, of dark nights of the soul, the faithful in Israel had clung to these prophecies. They had pleaded these promises before God. They passed them down to their children, nurturing it in their imaginations. Messiah's coming. They wrestled with God in that painful gap between the promised salvation and the present suffering. And finally, here's Jesus. In verse 28, He's been performing miracles in every town that he travels on the way to Jerusalem. He's been proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And now he's, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives towards the holy city, and he specifically tells his disciples, go ahead of me into the town that you're going to find, Bethage and Bethany, and get me a young colt, a young donkey, and bring it to me. I mean... Do you see how Jesus is he's orchestrating this, this big reveal? He's, he's coordinating this, this aha moment of revelation for his disciples where he's intentionally connecting all the dots. He's activating all the ancient prophecies and he's showing how they're coming together right here, right now in him. This may seem like a strange insignificant moment for us as 21st century disciples of Jesus reading this account. But for these first century disciples of Jesus, these first century Jewish disciples of Jesus, this would have been a life-defining moment. A breakthrough moment. Where faith finally passes into sight. We can't earn these moments, friends. We can't force them or manipulate God to give them to us. We can only receive them as gifts from the Lord. Like Zechariah in his old age, holding the promise in his arms. After so many years of waiting, finally being able to sing, mine eyes have seen the salvation which you've prepared for all the world to see. This moment 
was a revelation, not just of the Messiah, but that God had not forgotten his people. That God still saw them. And this sign, it still speaks to us today, doesn't it? Because we need Jesus to make moments of revelation for us too, don't we? When the lab results come back and it isn't looking good, when you've been unemployed since the start of COVID and your savings are almost gone, when your marriage is falling apart, and at this point, you just don't see a way forward. When your prayers go unanswered for years, and you feel like giving up on God. When after five years of chronic anxiety and depression, you feel ready to give up. We just need a glimpse, just a glimpse that God is still on the throne and that the promised king is still coming, don't we? Ultimately, we just, we need to know that God still sees us. You know, the whole plan of salvation wasn't accomplished in this one moment. Jesus would mount that donkey and ride down the Mount of Olives, straight into his crucifixion. But we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem like a conquering king, and it must have given them just a foretaste of that future fulfillment that was coming on the other side of the cross. Do you need Jesus to make a moment for you? A moment that lets you see that he sees you. If that's you, I just want to pray for you right now. I pray, even now, Jesus, that this Holy Week, as we journey towards Resurrection Day together, that you would meet those whose faith is fainting. That you would make a moment just for them. A moment when old prayers are answered, a moment when scripture promises they've pleaded, come through and things turn around. Where faith gives way even just a moment to sight. Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen. So we've seen now how Jesus, he fills our cups with this moment that he makes. But look at how this revelation catalyzed a response of worship. Picking it up together in, in verse 32. And those who were sent ahead went and found the colt just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. I mean, can't you just like imagine the big goofy grin these disciples must have had as they brought the donkey to Jesus? 
grabbed his arms and foisted him up onto it. I mean, this was a big moment, right? This is what they've been waiting for. This is what they've been hoping for. This is what they've been praying for. This is, this is what they left everything for when Jesus first entered into their lives and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me. The long-awaited king is finally riding into Jerusalem. And, you know, Luke, Luke doesn't mention it here in his account, but in John, who was also there, one of the disciples, in his account, people are also waving palm branches and throwing them into the street along with their cloaks as Jesus rides by. You know, for us, this might seem kind of strange, but in Jesus' day, spreading out your cloaks before someone who was riding their horse down the road or waving palm branches and throwing them into the street, this was something that you did for royalty. It was a sign of joyful submission and celebration and devotion. It's, it's essentially, you know, rolling out a royal red carpet for a conquering king saying, we honor you. We celebrate you. We welcome you. We submit to you as the ruler over us. And the incredible thing here is that unlike the lords of the Roman Empire, Jesus doesn't blaze into town on a war horse, surrounded by this entourage of beautiful and special people. He's riding on a borrowed baby donkey surrounded by a group of dirty and desperate disciples who've been marked by his presence. My brothers and sisters, deep down, isn't this the kind of leader that your heart craves? Isn't this the kind of leader your heart craves? A king who holds together in his one person both genuine authority and gentle approachability. A king who doesn't have blind spots that burn the people close to them. A king who's totally, like, fully good all the way down. Unlike so many other human leaders and influencers that we're used to, Jesus doesn't use his power and his authority to manipulate us. He doesn't use his position as the Son of God to make us serve him or to feel inferior in his presence because he doesn't actually need us to serve him. He doesn't need us to bow down for him to be glorified. He doesn't need human followers for him to have influence and spiritual authority. But bowing down in his presence, what it does is it actually lifts us up. It fills us to the point of overflow. You know, one early church father said it like this in, in his personal prayer diary. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's no compulsion here. But when we see him high and lifted up, 
He's so beautiful that we want to bow low. And that's what I love about this scene. They're throwing their cloaks. We know from John's account they're waving palm branches, and yet Jesus doesn't even tell them to do this. Like, this is all them. This is their idea. It's just this raw, authentic overflow of joy and love as King Jesus is passing by, and they're just so happy to be his. My brothers and sisters, this is what the bride of Christ looks like at her best. This is how we confess Jesus is Lord. By heartfelt, humble submission and lavish love. You know, maybe you're sort of preparing yourself to feel ashamed, like I'm going to be trying to make you feel bad for not worshiping with the same heartfelt devotion and sincerity and spontaneity as, as these first disciples. Because, you know, I think for most of us, this kind of just raw, organic, radical joy, this heartfelt submission, it feels kind of out of reach. Like, you know, like, I'm just trying to get up 15 minutes early to pray and do a quiet time. I don't know if I can, you know, have heartfelt sincerity and lavish love all the time. But here's the thing about, about this kind of worship. You know, even if you're preparing yourself to receive a guilt trip, I'm not going to give you one because this isn't the kind of love and worship that you can guilt yourself into. You can't shame yourself into this. You can't, you can't fake it. For it to be regular and for it to be real, it's got to be rooted in a genuine awe of the gospel. I love how one pastor defines and summarizes the gospel. He writes this, the gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's what motivates us for humble, joyful submission and lavish love in the presence of Jesus. Jesus died so that we could stand in his glory and live. So that we could gaze on his beauty, burning like the sun at full strength. And not only see it, not only observe it as someone who's detached and separated from it, but so that we could be baptized with it and marked and transformed by it to the core of our being. So that we could share in his beauty and his glory for all eternity, starting now. This is what Jesus prays in John 17. He wants us to see his glory, and he wants to share it with us. His unique glory as the humble servant king. Christian, steep your mind and your heart in this reality. Daily. And over time, how can we not cast our cloaks before him and bow low? But this leads us 
to the final thing that we need to see, that if we actually want to sustain this worship for a lifetime and not just have it be a moment flare-up, we need, we need a community. We need a community that's, that's actually centered around the presence of Jesus that spurs us to celebrate the wonders he works for us. Did you see this and catch that? Starting in verse 37, look at this. This is incredible. And when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Good. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This, this celebration, this humble submission and lavish love in the presence of Jesus, this is no longer just a few people as Jesus is coming down the road. Luke tells us now, it's the whole crowd of disciples crying out in worship. This thing has gone viral. And what are they saying? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar to you at all? This, this song takes us back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, to, to the birth of Jesus, where the angels sang over him, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. The only difference is this time, Earth is singing it back to heaven. Glory to God in the highest and peace in heaven. Heaven and earth are, are worshiping together. They're blessing each other. They're pouring into each other, increasing each other's joy in Jesus. This is, this is an otherworldly moment. Friends, this is a foretaste of eternity where heaven and earth, angels and believers, we're going to be gathered together around the person of Jesus, singing over him together. When the, the rocks will literally cry out, as it says in the Psalms, and the trees and rivers will clap their hands, and the mountains will sing for joy. All creation's going to get in on this praise session. But how does it start? What triggers it? Verse 37. It tells us it started as the disciples reflected together on all the miracles they had seen. Did you notice that? This raw, organic joy that grows up in a community centered around Jesus. A community where we come together often to wonder and to worship over Jesus. And what I think is so powerful is, most likely, from, from what we know of Luke's account, the majority of these disciples in the crowd are people who Jesus met on his journey to Jerusalem. People who he healed. People who he released from demonic oppression. People whose shame he removed who he brought back into human community from the margins. People who were forever changed 
when they heard his teaching or they had a life-altering conversation with him. I imagine this new song breaking out before they see Jesus coming down the road as they're just walking along, journeying together, reminding each other, like, hey, do you remember when Jesus did blank? It's like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. But do you remember when Jesus did this? They're just just totally in awe of Christ, swapping and sharing these memories of how he's come in and marked their life with the mighty works he's done for them. And friends, it's this kind of active attention to the activity of God in our life that activates a heart of worship. I'll say that again. It's this active attention to the activity of God in our life that activates a heart of worship. And what what this story shows us is that when we gather together, those of us who've had worshipful hearts activated by reflecting with attention on the activity of God in our life, something incredible happens. When we start coming together, praising him, swapping stories, a culture of worship begins to form. Where wonder, joy, and mighty works are normal and breaking out all the time. Even when the the Pharisees are criticizing from the sidelines, right? They're trying to shut this thing down. Everybody's calling Jesus king and Lord. What do the Pharisees call him? Hey, teacher. Like, let's knock him down one. When they try and sort of shut down this praise party, they can't do it, right? It's just flowing up so naturally and organically out of them. It's like Peter and John said in Acts 4, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I think a lot of the spiritual doubt, the confusion, even those who've maybe walked away or denied their profession of faith during the pandemic, I think a lot of that's come from Christians getting disconnected from the community of disciples, getting disconnected from this culture of worship. We got unplugged from Christian community, we got isolated, we started plugging into all sorts of other inputs, inputs that drowned out the stories of how Jesus had brought freedom and joy and healing. And friends, what this account shows us is that we need these stories. We need these personal stories from people we know to build our faith and to fuel our worship and our devotion to God. We need them to actually see Jesus and have our own cup filled to the brim. But it all starts, it all starts with seeing Jesus at work in our lives. It's sometimes the big stuff. Oftentimes it's it's the smaller, more subtle miracles we might miss if we aren't paying attention. So this week I've gotten an invitation for you. Try unplugging from what other inputs you might be plugged into and spend the first two minutes, just the first two minutes, but the first two minutes of your morning in silent prayer, centering your mind and your heart 
on the presence of Jesus who's with you. And then, for the rest of the day, as you just you know, go about your ordinary daily life, just try and pay attention to where you sense God's presence. Where's Jesus meeting you? Where are you finding life? Or on the other hand, where are you feeling farthest away from Jesus? Where do you see him at your work? Where do you see him in your relationships? Where do you see him in your community? Where do you see him in your emotions? And just jot down these, these little notes in your phone or in, or in a journal. Whenever you sense God speaking to you, encouraging you, blessing you, just maybe bringing specific people into your life. And then on Sunday, what if, what if we just shared a couple of these ways that God's been meeting us, where we've seen him working at our life? What if we just shared them with somebody else, either in person or, or over a text Let them worship Jesus with you and let your story encourage them and build up their faith. You know, if you're worshiping at our Columbia campus, this could look like, you know, just hanging around for an extra 30 minutes in the Real Talk corridor in the lobby. If you're at our Owings Mills Reisterstown campus, this could look like hanging out by the fireplace, you know, just connecting with people in the lobby, you know, and it might take faith to do it, right? Like, for introverts, you know, like, like me, striking up a conversation with someone I don't know, it's kind of, you know, that can be kind of out of our comfort zone, right? But think about it this way. Stepping out of our comfort zone can also be an act of worship and lavish love, right? We're spreading our cloaks out before Jesus. And for all we know, he could be using this moment where we share with someone about what he's been doing in our lives to make a moment of revelation for them. A moment that will let somebody know, God sees me. Bridgeway, let's keep being people who show up to build up. These are the kind of simple practices that cultivate a culture of worship where heaven pours into earth and fills our cup to the point of overflow. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Bridgeway, visit our website at bridgeway.cc. To watch all of our sermons, visit our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe while you're there. If you'd like to download sermon notes, just click the link in the description. If you'd like to take part in our 30th anniversary challenge, go to bridgeway.cc 30. That's bridgeway.cc slash T-H-I-R-T-Y. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.